When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome everyone to episode 36 of True Blue Crime, our first for 2020. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. Excited to be back for the new year and feeling somewhat like a bigwig uh, American podcast that puts their Skype calls on YouTube with our new setup that we've got. Um, (laughs) I can see you in the phone next to me and feel like I'm somewhat performing. Yeah, it is a bit like that. I've moved away over the break, so we'll be sort of calling it in, but we'll catch up every now and then for for episodes in person. I'm not that far away, but we took a bit of time to get our new setup happening, but I think it's I think it's going to be good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but also before we jump into things, Chloe, just wanted to mention the the fires that have really ripped through our home state, but also New South Wales and going on in ACT at the moment too. So it's pretty um tough time over the festive season for everyone. So, you know, we wanted to uh, give anyone affected a bit of a shout out. Yeah, definitely. We really hope that everyone's safe and that their possessions and homes are intact and just that they're doing okay and to look after each other, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And some more positive shout outs. We have some uh, some more Patreon support over the break. We do. Uh, thank you and welcome to Elizabeth Campbell, K-Star, Mason J, Sarah Henderson, Mark, Mick Oliveri, Sharon, Kristen Maylor, Renee Barnes, Amy Strom and Naomi. We do have a few more because we were off for part of December until now, but I'll read those out next week. And thank you to everyone who signed up in the meantime. Claire Jean's also upped her pledge a few weeks back, Chloe, too, from 2 to $5. So uh, Claire's been with us right from the start. So thank you very much for that, Claire. I think her and Chris Hardy are battling for the number one fan spot at the moment. So we'll see how that pans out. (laughs) Claire is a legend and so is Chris. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thank you. Guys, quick heads up for this case today. There are some quite graphic descriptions and disturbing content in this case. To kick off our 2020 clue, we're talking about a case which we mentioned on Patreon actually way back after the Leonard Fraser and Peter Dupas episodes. We mentioned this case at the end of the Jailhouse Confessions episode we did on Patreon. And it's a combined solved and unsolved case. An interesting one with a very seedy backdrop, which is right up my alley, Chloe. And I've wanted to cover this one for some time since we mentioned it. Jack the Ripper was an unidentified serial killer who attacked and murdered predominantly female sex workers in the Whitechapel area of London in 1888. His victims typically had their throats cut prior to being abdominally mutilated. And the killer or killers we're talking about today was said by experienced serial killer profilers to share many of these same characteristics as the 19th century London murderer. But our story today is set in the late 1990s and a far cry from the east end of London. We're up in sunny Queensland, but not in a particularly sunny area figuratively speaking, back during this era. The Fortitude Valley has been cleaned up in recent times, but back during the late 90s, it was much seedier and widely known as Brisbane's Red Light District. And it was here that an organised and unassuming man by day would become known as the Valley Ripper 
by night. Sunday, 8th of February, 1998. 3.30am, Fortitude Valley, Queensland. Karen Redmile was working near the intersection of Brunswick and Harcourt Streets, another night in the valley, dealing with the client's requests and negotiating, in more ways than one, to try and make ends meet. She was speaking with a man, and this guy had a noticeably deep voice, a real valley baritone. But the conversation didn't remain amicable. It escalated and became violent. Other sex workers nearby heard glass smashing and loud thumping noises thereafter. They didn't see anything. A short time later, Karen Ann Redmile was found on the footpath outside 99 Harcourt Street, unconscious and with severe head injuries. She was admitted to hospital and witnesses reported to police what they'd heard. Question was, would Karen ever regain consciousness and identify her attacker? So, as we said, Chloe, Fortitude Valley, or the Valley as it's known is an area about one kilometre north of Brisbane CBD. It can be likened to Sydney's King's Cross and perhaps Melbourne's King Street and St Kilda areas. Sex work is the primary trade. And back in the day, there was illegal gambling and scores of corrupt law enforcement and politicians partying their nights away in the valley. Then, after Joe Bielke-Peterson's lengthy stint as the Queensland State Premier, something called the Fitzgerald Inquiry happened. This was looking into vice and police corruption, essentially. The state government redeveloped a lot of the valley, and this subsided some of the seediness, but it didn't get rid of it completely. On the 12th of February 1998, a woman was going for a run through her local reserve, the Samford Nature Reserve, it was called, in Brisbane. It was around quarter past six in the morning, and as she jogged along the path, she spotted through the trees the figure of a human body lifeless on the ground. She panicked, understandably, and returned home to get her husband. The couple then went back to inspect before contacting authorities. And indeed, the husband confirmed it was the body of a female lying face down in the dirt. She was situated in this gravel car parking area of sorts that was known locally to attract drug dealers and users, as well as being a bit of a hookup spot. The woman's body was underneath the looming overhead electricity wires and she was completely naked except for a pair of leather braids she had on her wrist and ankle. So the couple didn't dawdle. They contacted police who attended the scene to investigate. The woman had been brutally attacked. There was no way around that. Clubbed to death was the description, with several blows to the head coming from what was said to be a heavy but sharp object, potentially a small axe. And interestingly... This next little morsel of information is one to remember for later on. She had been branded with a hot iron. It left this triangle of scarlet bruises on the woman's back and at each corner of the triangle was a circular shape, so it was very distinctive. And this is going to get worse, as if what's been done to this poor woman wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. It was fairly obvious to those inspecting the scene that an attempt had been made to burn the woman's body too. She'd been partially doused in petrol and set alight, and there was significant charring on her legs. Worse again, the woman was determined during her autopsy to be four months pregnant. So, an absolutely devastating and brutal attack here. Upon performing the autopsy, police were able to match her fingerprints to their database and determine her identity to be that of 30-year-old Elizabeth Rebecca Henry. Inquiries revealed that she'd been seen alive just the night before her body was discovered, but around 20 kilometres away on Brunswick Street in the Fortitude Valley. 
This was just before midnight when Elizabeth had been conducting sex work on this notorious corner. It was deduced that she'd been picked up, murdered and then dumped in the gravel parking area near the reserve. An account from a witness would detail that they'd spotted a beige-coloured four-wheel drive on Samford Road, which intersects with Bygots Road, at around 5.30am on the 12th of February, so around an hour before Elizabeth's body was discovered. And this witness said that they noticed some smoke from the area shortly after this beige Forby departed the area. But this was just three days after Karen Redmile had been discovered attacked on Harcourt Street in the valley, left for dead, and at this time still in a coma. Elizabeth Henry had been through a tough time prior to her brutal murder. She'd battled alcoholism and had been dealing with a personality disorder. She was a mother of six, as I understand, but had recently given up custody of three of the kids to her ex-husband, adopted another child out, and given the other two to her older sister, Jenny. Jenny remarked that Elizabeth had only just returned to working on the streets after a two-month break and had recently been homeless and poor, only conducting sex work out of the sheer necessity rather than by choice. She was described as a very caring and loyal person who had had a bad run of things in recent times, but she knew some dangerous people, and Elizabeth wasn't one to back down. She was strong-willed. So had this combination of circumstances led to her untimely murder? Elizabeth Henry's murder and Karen Redmile's attempted murder would be thoroughly investigated by the police. But other than a few of the aforementioned clues, there was no solid physical evidence for police to crack either case wide open. Ultimately, both cases would fade in the local news over the next five years. But in the valley itself, the streets would remain tinged with fear as talk of an unidentified Valley Ripper persisted, and with good reason. On the 8th of August 2002, some five years later, as we said, a long-haul trucker was carving out a U-turn next to the Hendra Police Station in Brisbane's north when he spotted a woman's body in a nearby vacant block. He alighted his vehicle to inspect and confirmed his suspicions, making a gruesome discovery indeed. The police didn't have far to travel, being only next door, so I assume they responded rather quickly. The woman's body was curled up in a fetal position, and by the stage of rigor mortis, police could tell she'd been dead for between four to six hours. She was only wearing a black crop top and ankle boots, nothing else. And while she had no identification on her, she did have some identifying tattoos. So based on her attire, these boots and tops suggested the woman may have engaged in sex work. The police took photos of these tattoos and showed them to colleagues in the valley. They were soon able to determine the woman's identity as 41-year-old Jasmine Crathern. Jasmine was the victim of what was described as a frenzied attack. Over a dozen stab wounds to her chest and back, and her throat had also been slashed. And the killer hadn't used some average knife. Whatever they'd used, it had inflicted wounds as deep as 16 centimetres. But there was one very interesting aspect. There was little to no blood at the scene. So that told police that she'd been murdered elsewhere, but then dumped in this vacant block next to the police station, obviously the killer wanting it to be discovered. So it was a very brazen display from this Valley Ripper, this red light killer. Was he showing off, throwing down the gauntlet to the police? catch me if you can, that type of thing. Well, that's what the police would try their very best to do in the investigation thereafter. There were some clues to work with at this scene, but not a lot. There were no defensive wounds or drugs in her system. The main clues they had were tyre tracks that led to her body and boot prints from the driver's side of the vehicle. So they took these prints, tyre widths, etc. for further examination and tried to find some likely suspects by looking into Jasmine's life. The list, however, was seemingly endless. Ex-partners, pimps, clients, it was a never-ending rabbit hole for investigators. But a discussion with a colleague of Jasmine's named Renee was able to shed light on Jasmine's last moments before she'd vanished and then been murdered. Going off a description Renee had given of what Jasmine was wearing the night before, a beige top and jacket, Police were able to spot Jasmine on CCTV from a nearby BP service station at around 8.30pm on the 7th of August. 
She was then spotted by a witness at a nearby food van after this, but after that there was nothing. The trail went cold. So she'd gone missing after this and been discovered murdered the following morning. The problem was filling in this big gap as there were no other witnesses. So physical evidence was where this thing was heading. Inquiries with ex-boyfriends and local standover men who had sordid pasts involving assault and murder were cleared on solid alibis. The boots and tyre prints were the most valuable leads at this point in time, and this was despite the police actually recording some DNA from a semen stain on Jasmine's clothing. This DNA didn't come back with any hits from the police database, and anyone police interviewed had voluntarily given their DNA, none of which matched. So it was looking more and more likely that the killer was a stranger who didn't have a violent criminal background. It also complicated matters that semen stains on a sex worker's clothing wouldn't necessarily identify the perpetrator, making it difficult for the DNA to be a silver bullet for the police case. But either way, they couldn't find who the DNA belonged to, so the shoes and tyre prints were the focus. Police went door-to-door with local inquiries, they got tyre and shoe experts in, and when it came to the shoes, they were able to determine that these prints came from a pair of T-boots. Promising as that sounded, it wasn't going to lead to the killer as the boots were very popular and had been sold locally for over 30 years. Records of those sales just simply didn't go that far back. Police theorised that they likely had a true, unidentified serial killer on their hands at this point. The media was connecting Jasmine Cathern's murder with the murder of Elizabeth Henry and attempted murder of Karen Redmile from five years earlier. Karen was still alive in hospital in a coma at this point too, five years on, severely brain damaged and a paraplegic from her injuries. Police did the rounds throughout the valley, interviewing all of the sex workers who'd speak to them. Many of them worked on in fear as the unidentified valley ripper continued to lurk in the shadows. That fear only grew when 24 hours later after the discovery of Jasmine's body, another sex worker named Lana Reside vanished from Paul's Terrace in the valley. She was seen getting into a vehicle with potentially two men. The reported sighting wasn't great, as I inferred. Whatever the case, by October a couple of months later, Lana was located alive and well, at least somewhat well. And she, along with all of the other women on the streets of the valley, continued plying their trade into the new year of 2003. Wednesday, February the 26th, 2003, local Brisbane City Council worker Dan Daly was driving to Deepwater Bend on the banks of the Pine River as part of his morning rounds. Around 8am, Dan parked his vehicle at the Tricky Tamba Wetlands Reserve. But he wasn't the only one in the car park. Unfortunately, Dan had stumbled upon the body of another woman. She was face down in the dirt naked except for a sandal on one foot, and she'd been hogtied and stabbed a number of times. 24, it was later determined. The ropes used to bind her were a multi-plaid braid cotton type with clips added by a special crimping tool. So poor old Dan, the council worker, obviously called it in and police were prompted to respond. And a cursory glance determined that this was likely connected to the murder of Jasmine Crathern just a few months earlier. The victim was identified as 42-year-old Julie McCall, and like those before her, Julie too was a sex worker from the valley. Police weren't the only ones connecting the murders. The media had picked this up like a bunch of rabid dogs and began circulating the story that a serial killer was loose in the valley. Nicknames such as the Red Light Killer and the Schizo were coined, but ultimately I think the Valley Ripper won out, at least in my mind. At this crime scene, there was very little evidence compared with that of Jasmine Crathern's. The rain had washed away tyre and footprints. The police did, however, find a crumpled personal cheque nearby. They looked into the man who'd written it, 
but it turned out to be unrelated to the crime and this guy was subsequently cleared. So what happened to Julie McColl? Well, the mother of three had been walking the streets in the valley just five hours earlier when she was last seen at around 3am on that Wednesday morning. She'd been chatting with her friend Jacinda Thorne about how the tumbling rain had affected their night's earnings. Jacinda last saw Julie walking along Adelaide Street wearing a white top, blue denim miniskirt and dark sandals before she disappeared. So as we said, police and the media were all over this. We had two victims plucked from the street and murdered within a six-month period and another similar double attack from five years earlier, all sex workers, all from the Fortitude Valley, with some differences in the MO but similarities too. Nevertheless, sex workers in the area continued to work in what was now being called the Ripper's Kill Zone, with another report surfacing that a worker had narrowly escaped someone thought to have been the serial killer at large. Colleagues of Julie McColl's, Kay and her daughter Bettina Gardner, hypothesised that the killer was targeting older sex workers and that he was a square, a businessman. Kay and Julie had even discussed moving off the street prior to her murder and starting a bondage business, charging clients $500 per session. But the bondage game out on the street was risky business. You simply couldn't trust the people you were meeting for the first or second time to have that level of, uh, of trust to be tied up for a quick dollar. But that appeared to be what happened to Julie. There were no signs she'd been tied up against her will, no defensive injuries. So it was hypothesised she'd taken the submissive role, a bit of a risk because of the slow night's work. If we recall, she'd been discussing this with her colleague Jacinda prior to her vanishing from the streets. And it would be Julie's friend Jacinda that would ultimately give police the lead they'd been looking for. And we'll come back to that in a minute because the police had really ramped up their investigation into these murders at this point. They'd formed a 20-person sting task force named Operation Midas to investigate the murders of Jasmine Crathern, Julie McColl and Elizabeth Henry, and the attempted murder of Karen Redmile, who was still alive but in a coma at this point. Police were not only working on clues from the two more current murders, but combing back through things from the initial investigation into Elizabeth and Karen's attacks as well. They consulted the Department of Primary Industries about the branding found on Elizabeth Henry's back to see if they were from the livestock industry, which seemed like an obvious angle. A less obvious one was when they made inquiries within the jewellery industry too, as they thought it possible the weapon was a jewellery-making tool. They called in serial killer profilers, one prominent doctor named Rod Milton, who'd worked on the backpacker murders. Milton thought the killer to be highly organised, a person who presents himself well, normal, not mentally ill or with a criminal record, but with perverse tastes and enjoyed inflicting suffering. He was also the one who likened this red light killer to Jack the Ripper, spawning the Valley Ripper nickname in the press. But as we said before, all of these angles aside, it would be information from Julie McColl's colleague, Jacinda Thorne, who would give police their best tip yet. Jacinda reported that around 2.50am on the morning Julie was murdered, she, Jacinda this is, was approached by a man in a ute with a matching canopy and she briefly climbed into his car. This guy wanted sex, but with a kinky little twist, a dash of lemon, if you will, Chloe. He wanted to tie Jacinda up with her hands behind her back and her feet bound and to blindfold her. So straight away, this is ringing bells with how Julie McColl was found, right? Jacinda had turned the man down and left his vehicle. The guy said, I might be back, and then drove off. She described him as a Caucasian male, 40 to 45 years old, overweight with a beer gut, and he had a moustache. So the police's interest was now well and truly piqued at the report of this 4X swilling guy with a bondage fetish who'd been in the valley in his canopied ute that very morning. They knew the street Jacinda had been on from her report, so they went back to these businesses along that strip there and scoured their CCTV that had been taken back in their original investigation. They had caught a break pouring through this footage. They saw a vehicle that matched Jacinda's description driving through the streets of the valley three times that night. Police took this footage to local car dealers who all unanimously agreed that the vehicle looked like a Mitsubishi Triton, 
a 96 to 2001 model, which had tyre tracks similar to the ones found at Jasmine Crathern's crime scene. With Jacinda's help, police artists were also able to put together a confit drawing. So they had a face and a vehicle to narrow down. They also dug deeper into the tyre prints based on the vehicle revelation. They had to cull the list of 2,000 tyre sales and 700 vehicle owners down somewhat though to make inquiries feasible and also relevant. So initially, police focused north of Brisbane, near the areas Jasmine Crathern and Julie McColl had been found, and this narrowed things down to approximately 26 people, a very manageable number for surveillance. Mitsubishi Australia also helped with their inquiries, and police were able to determine that the tyre print actually came from a cheap imported Chinese tyre, which only one distributor from the region sold. It's worth noting here too, Chloe, that the Triton in the CCTV was quite distinctive. It had a number of custom features, including pinstriping down the sides, fog lights, a CB aerial and a nudge bar. So police canvassed these 26 addresses of the Triton owners, looking for a vehicle that matched the evolving description. On one of these fine sunny Queensland days, they arrived at the residence of a man named Francis Michael Fahey in Narangbar, north of Brisbane. Sitting in his driveway was a customised Triton with a canopy, pinstriping, a CB aerial and a nudge bar. The vehicle also had a set of cheap Chinese imported tyres and a quick glance inside the window of the vehicle showed the police a pair of T-boots. So police had a few decent links, but they were just that. They needed to look into the man and conduct surveillance. Fahey was an unlikely suspect. Although he'd been ticketed in the Triton and convicted of work cover fraud in the past, he had no violent criminal record. He was a 50-year-old father of three, his old man was a former police officer, and Fahey himself had been an ambulance officer, a paramedic. From 1970 until 2000, he'd worked for the ambulance service, saving lives, until he claimed post-traumatic stress in 2000 and went off work, his downward spiral eventually ending up with the aforementioned work cover fraud conviction. During this time, documents would reveal that Fahey had spoken of uncontrollable rages and disturbing nightmares, and turned out he'd been admitted for psychiatric treatment several times. A photo of Fahey from his work cover conviction was a dead ringer for Jacinda Thorne's comfit image. Age was about right, he was overweight with a gutful of twoies and a bulbous red face and a moustache, and some crazy eyes on him too. Have a look at that, Chloe. These things were popping out of his head. So Fahey was starting to look pretty darn good to police, but they had to move quick because if he was their guy, he was escalating in both victim numbers and violence. Surveillance of Fahey followed him to Deepwater Bend Reserve, where he went fishing in the river near where Julie McColl's body had been discovered in the nearby car park, another thing linking the man. But the clencher was when the police obtained a discarded cigarette butt of Fahey's. DNA testing would come back with a positive match with the semen stain found on Jasmine Cathern's shirt. Things were really starting to stack up against Francis Fahey here, Chloe. He'd been linked to two of the murders, the two more recent ones, and police would discover a report filed by a woman named Renee Reeves, who upon further discussion confirmed it was Fahey who'd handcuffed her after sex, told her he was from the ATO, and then tried to run her over when she escaped and ran away. Up to 50 officers moved in at 5.30 this morning, executing search warrants. The precise raids were orchestrated by Task Force Midas, it's the special team investigating the murders of Fortitude Valley streetwalkers Julie McColl, Elizabeth Henry and Jasmine Crathern and the attempted murder of Karen Ann Redmile. We are interviewing the occupants of the house. Those people are assisting police with their inquiries and continue to do so at this time. Police finally swooped on Fahey's home in May of 2003 and hauled him in for questioning while the forensics team sweeped his property. The detectives slowly drew Fahey in with their questioning. Can you tell us what you were doing on that day? One of the detectives asked. I have no bloody idea, Fahey responded. The detectives knew Fahey had been driving through the valley and they told him as much. Fahey then proceeded to waffle a story along the following lines. 
His stepdaughter was apparently rumoured to have been looking for work in the valley at this time and Fahey was on a reconnaissance mission. On rainy nights, like the night Julie McCall was murdered, he'd often let women, sex workers, sit in his car while he questioned them about his stepdaughter's whereabouts. Mate, we're part of Task Force Midas and that task force is investigating deaths of a number of prostitutes from the Fortitude Valley area over a period of time from 1998 onwards. Do you understand that? Yeah. Mate, on the way in in the car, you tell me that you are a regular visitor to the valley area. Well, I have been, yeah. As far as I was aware, it was originally she wasn't getting any money from Social Security, so she had to be getting the money from somewhere. Um, my first thoughts are that when because she was going down the valley, that... Um, she was what they call a working girl. Did you get any response from the working girls? No. I think you told me some were a bit pissed off when they found out you weren't a customer. Yeah. Right. And you told me in the car that you've never been a customer of the prostitutes down there in the valley? No. And you don't know uh, Jasmine Crathurne or Julie McColl, who were two prostitutes who were working down there? No. And uh, as I recall, you said that on occasion, or at least one occasion or two occasions, the girls actually sat in the vehicle and talked with you? Is that right? There was a couple of raining nights there, yeah. I mean, um, I'm not an arsehole, if you know what I mean. I no. mean if somebody comes up and, I mean, um, and wants to chat, that's fine. I mean, they can sit in the car. Um, because I'm there to find out what's happening with my stepdaughter. Well, I told them, you know, not interested, but I said, you know, could you do me a favour? And they sort of look at me, you know, we don't do anything, any favours. I said, well, I explained who I was looking for, and um, they uh, said, no, we hadn't seen them. Do you recall anything else that was said to them, or they said to you? Um, well, I was actually told what the prices were there at one stage, <laughs> and they vary. <laughs> So he is providing a reason why he was there, while making himself look like a concerned parent and a good guy. But the police also knew he'd been at Deepwater Bend. Why had he been there, they asked. So where do you put in if you're going to fish the Pine River? Where do you put in from? I put in at um, Deepwater Bend. I prefer to stick to the more sheltered waters. Yep. We usually find the fishing dam site better. I like to fish in spots away from the fucking idiots on their jet skis and, and the water skiers. So I stay around those areas. But as the detectives adjourned the four-hour interview at that point, results from the search of Fahey's home were proving extremely fruitful. They located the murder weapon used on both Jasmine Crathurn and Julie McColl, a hunting knife which Fahey apparently used for pigging, his T-boots as issued by the ambulance service, which also, after testing, were confirmed to have Jasmine Crathurn's blood on them. And on his boat they found some interesting ropes and a crimping tool, all of which matched the impressions they'd taken from the items at Julie McColl's murder scene. So there's a couple of words for this kind of scenario here. Slam dunk is what I'm thinking, and the police must have been too. But armed with a dazzling array of evidence, it turned out the best was yet to come. As the detectives re-entered the room, Fahey opened up. Mate, a short time ago I was called back into the room. I was told that she wanted to speak to me. Yep. Mate, um, what is it you want to talk about on this occasion? <sighs> I just want to get a lot of shit off my chest. Mate, is it in relation to the matters that we have spoken to earlier this morning? Yep. When Ms. Bird jumped in and wanted to know if I wanted any company, and I said, yeah, I don't mind the company. And she told me what the prices were, $50 for a blow job. And it kind of appealed to me, so... Agreed. We drove into a vacant lot. Um, she wanted to be um, paid first up, and um, so I paid her the fifty bucks. And um, we walked to the back of the car, and um, we had oral sex. Uh, the condom broke, and um, next thing I recall is that I'm hooking along the bloody gateway to the fucking great red of knots. Um, the other one, I pulled up there at the um, 
the nighty old place. I got uh, a cup of coffee from there, and I think I got a, something to eat. I can't remember what I had to eat. I pulled into a side street. I think it was on the right-hand side, heading back towards the wall. Pulled up there to, to finish my coffee. And I got a tap on the window, and um, Spoo was offering different services and what have she offered to give me a blade job for 25 bucks, I think it was. And um, she sat in the car with me while I was um, finishing my coffee and then she started, you know, talking about um, what turned me on, that sort of stuff, and that led to the bondage thing. And then, then she suggested that um, we go back to her place. I said, no, I wouldn't be in that, in that, um, uh, I wouldn't feel safe. And um, the only place I could think of was Deepwater Pen. I told her about it and she agreed to go. With this sort of weather, she said, I'm not going to get much business tonight. We, we drove to there and um, I remember tying her up. I remember getting the uh, blowjob. And you see, I remember I pulled up on the side of the road underneath the bridge. And I'm using these um, drink bottles and cordial bottles to wash blood off my legs. And I threw my guts up. I remember doing that. As he spoke, he stretched his arms out in front of him. His eyes were down, his shoulders slumped. He looked relieved. It was all over. The detective asked him if he felt better. To a certain degree I do, and to a certain degree I don't, he said. I mean, I don't know why it happened. I don't know why it happened, because I spent all my fucking life saving lives, and now I'm taking them. I don't know why. So, Fahey confessed to the murders of Jasmine Crathern at Hendra, and Julie McColl at Bald Hills. He said he'd snapped and stabbed the women to death, but he didn't know why, nor could he remember the incidents. So obviously Fahey was arrested, charged, and went to trial. All of the aforementioned evidence was presented in what I'd call an airtight case. The court heard about a family man, a former paramedic, who'd been diagnosed with an adjustment disorder, had a heart attack in 1999, suffered problems with hearing in his left ear and subsequently finished work and had a rough trot since. He'd had outbursts of inexplicable anger, sometimes frightened his ex-wife, and when she said taking his own life was something that he, Francis, would do, he decided not to just to spite her. Prove the bitch wrong, he said. Fahey was assessed for his mental and physical health during the hearing to ensure he was fit to continue. He was and the trial went on. Fahey's current wife of 13 years, Beth, said outside of court that she didn't believe her husband was capable of these offences, and the only explanation was his struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. This condition had been treated for a number of years while Fahey was still in the ambulance service, but not well, according to Beth. Doctors only gave him medication and he wasn't offered counselling services. Mrs Fahey said, I still cannot believe in my heart that the man that I have lived with all those years is capable of doing this. He's quite a loving and caring and gentle person. All I know is Mr. Fahey is a sick man, and that's the only way I can look at it, that he's done this at a time when he's been unable to cope, she said. This was a desperate man who desperately wanted to get better, and I honestly don't know what's gone wrong. I cannot, to this second, believe that he could kill anybody because he is the gentlest and most loving person I've ever met in my life. In April 2006, Francis Michael Fahey was sentenced to two life terms for the murders of Julie McCall and Jasmine Crathern, with a non-parole period of 25 years. He'll be eligible for parole in 2028. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. But there's two other victims here, Chloe, that we've still not resolved. Detectives did not believe that Fahey was involved in the 1998 murder of Elizabeth Henry or attempted murder of Karen Redmile. This is despite the attacks being connected by the media up until this point and that beige four-wheel drive link we mentioned earlier. But it was probably fair enough. For one, Fahey was still active in the ambulance service at this time and may have been excluded on those grounds. But otherwise, there was really nothing linking him to those crimes, nor did he profess to know anything about the attacks, unlike those he confessed to. On the 2nd of September 2006, just four short months after Fahey was sentenced, sadly, Karen Redmile died in hospital. Her attack eight years earlier was now deemed to be a murder, and which is a real shame, very sad obviously for Karen and her family, and also frustrating in the sense that she may have been able to identify her and Elizabeth Henry's killer, the unidentified Valley Ripper. So both of their cases remain unsolved to this day. As we said at the start, this was part solved and part unsolved. Elizabeth Henry's relatives, namely Sister Mary and Brother Peter, have come forward in the press in somewhat recent years, still devastated at the loss of their sister, obviously, but keeping the case alive. They have theories on who might have been responsible, Mary said that in the time before her death, Elizabeth knew she was going to be murdered and that she said people were after her to kill her. Peter added that Elizabeth had knowledge of and planned to expose an underground snuff film scene in Brisbane, which was why she was silenced. Snuff films, for those who don't know, are generally sexually exploitative films in which a person is actually killed. These things are made for a sick and minority audience. And, you know, that theory could well have legs. We know from descriptions earlier that Elizabeth wasn't one to back down. She was strong-willed. But for me, when it comes to Elizabeth Henry's murder and potentially that of Karen Redmile by association, one of the best theories I believe comes from former police officer John Garner. Garner worked on identifying Fahey's vehicle in the murders of Julie McColl and Jasmine Grathern and the attempted attack on Renee Reeves, who we also mentioned earlier, she managed to escape from Fahey. Lucky her. Garner was a forensic expert, and he'd worked on the Sydney Granny Killer case and the Daniel Morecambe case, both of which we're yet to cover. Garner was convinced of the connection in Elizabeth's murder to the meat industry. Garner made drawings of the torture marks found on Elizabeth's back, and by tracing these marks... His drawing showed what appeared to be a triangle with a bull's head in the middle of it, similar to a small good beef stamp. We'll post a picture of Garner's drawing so you can see what we're talking about. The second interesting factor tying back to the meat industry was Elizabeth's head wounds. The weapon used to inflict these is still unidentified, but Garner's theory was that it was consistent with a common livestock killing tool. Now, have you seen the movie No Country for Old Men, Chloe? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a great film by the Coen brothers. They do a really great job on it. It's actually based on the Cormac McCarthy novel of the same name. He's one of my favourite writers and that novel is great too. But in this story, there's a character you probably recall played by Javier Bardem. Uh, His name is Anton Chigurh in the movie and he's the main bad guy. And for a good portion of the movie, he uses this weapon that's kind of like a pneumatic or gas-powered stun gun of sorts. He kills a number of people with it, but basically he puts it to their head and the pressure of the attached gas cylinder shoots out this bolt that sort of retracts and is meant to induce unconsciousness in the cows. But obviously it has a greater effect on humans. I actually think about those murders a lot in that movie. It really stays with you and I almost compare every movie murder to that now you mention it. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. It's called a, I think it's called a captive bolt gun, this thing. 
And this type of tool, I this is the type of thing I inferred Garner to be alluding to when he said, Elizabeth's injuries did not penetrate the skull. They put cracks around it, but they made jelly of the brain. It keeps coming back to the meat industry. That's my belief, and I remain unshaken in that belief. So I like Garner's angle with this. I think it has legs. But it's just that, a theory. Both cases remain unsolved and open with Queensland State Police. There's a $250,000 reward in place for anyone with evidence leading to a conviction in the murders of Elizabeth Henry and Karen Ann Redmile. May they, Jasmine and Julie, rest in peace. So as I said at the start, I've wanted to cover this one for some time now. It's very interesting in the sense that Francis Fahey was an unlikely suspect who seemingly snapped and committed these crimes. You know, what happened to him to cause that? Was it something lying dormant all along? Or even more scary to think, is it something lying dormant within us all and we just all have different thresholds and tolerances and Francis's was just less than most? I'm not sure. One thing that stood out to me in this investigation from the police was you know, we didn't see that typical heat they get for not pushing hard enough when a sex worker goes missing or, or makes a report. The police seemed very responsive and thorough in this investigation. I had to hold back a little bit on Fahey. I felt like there were so many easy, cheap shots I could have taken at this guy. But at the end of the day, you know, I had an element of, I wouldn't say empathy, but maybe understanding that perhaps this psychological episode really did just happen to him and it broke him. Maybe, maybe not too. Two women, both mothers, daughters died at his hands. So, you know, there's that too. So the the unsolved element intrigues me. I'm not sure that Elizabeth and Karen's murders are necessarily connected either. Now, we could be looking at two perpetrators there with Karen. Maybe an, maybe an altercation happened that went too far, a violent person, perhaps under the influence. With Elizabeth, the Meatworks connection and that feeling that you know, she knew someone wanted her dead suggests something a bit deeper and darker. So that's my two cents, Chloe. Yeah, well, I agree with you. The unsolved murders here, it's not something that I'm going to be able to forget easily. And I just wish we knew what happened to them. The idea that someone may have done something and gotten away with it or potentially hurt other people really gets to me. And the mindset and psychological element with Fahey too is interesting The fact that in his initial statement to police, he was confused himself by his motive. Surely there was something pretty serious mental illness-wise going on there, and I don't think that's post-traumatic stress. It's pretty rare for someone to experience something even like, say, psychosis, and then murder someone and be violent. So I would say there was some undiagnosed, pretty serious mental health stuff going on there. Regardless, I'm pretty glad he's in jail now for the crimes he committed. And as we said, and as always, our thoughts are with the victims, their families, and we hope that they've all found some peace after experiencing something so horrendous. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, let's move on to happy thoughts. Sean, did you want to go first? I will go first. For our first happy thought of 2020, you should have a bank. (laughs) This is not your easiest thing to do, but you... Have like six weeks of life to, to put into this happy thought. I know it should have. Been. It was relatively easy. I had a few happy thoughts over the festive break. So, uh, well, our our youngest daughter turned one. So, and she started walking yeah. now. So that's very cute. She's walking around, getting into everything, falling off everything. So, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, very very good stuff. And yours? Mine is that. I've just been going to the local pool and swimming laps. Well, I guess the weather's nice and I love swimming. I love being in the water and swimming laps is just so fun and it's pretty hard. So, you know, I really like to go to the gym and work out. So I feel like I'm doing something, but then also I'm super happy because I'm in a big body of water. So that's my happy thought that I've been doing that kind of once a week. Nice. Sounds good. Is there any truth, do you know, to the thing where if you pee in the pool water these days, it turns like purple or something? I don't know. I haven't tested it. I'm not about to. (laughs) Good call. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. 
For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. We have one coming out very shortly, if not out now, on the psychologically twisty case of Jenny Haynes, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, Chloe, we should probably also mention the fact that we thought we were truthful enough, so we've dropped the second true from our show name. Yeah, true. Uh, we just rolled into that this week, assuming everyone <laughs> listens to our Patreon uh, <laughs> teaser that we did for <laughs> the hundred or so people that we've got on there. So, yes, we have dropped the second true because the tongue twister at the start, to be honest, was a bit much. <laughs> yeah, we're just getting sick of having to, uh, every time I say it, having to retake it. So now we should just be able to do those intros in one. <laughs> shot it's a good call (laughs) it was well thanks again for listening guys that's it for us today and we'll be back with you all next week thank you everyone bye He wanted to sh- <laughs> nearly said he wanted to shag her. Like, what? He wa- <laughs> okay. I mean, you did. <laughs> yes. Okay, Austin. Um. End of December, two thousand and six. It's uh, Dis- September. September. Sorry. Oh, what did I say? December. Oh. Christmas brain. <laughs> I don't know. It's not. It's nearly February. <laughs> okay. 